In our series, A String of Pearls, Dutch Buzz contributors speak to people who have made an exceptional contribution to our local community. People whose passion for what they do have had an added value for the city of The Hague. For almost 10 years, Deborah Valentine has been Executive Director of Access, the volunteer-managed organization that provides help and advice to internationals in The Hague. Deborah invited Dutch Buzz to their brand new offices on the majestic tree-lined avenue of Langeverhout, where access is nestled in between the historic Klosterkerk and the British Embassy. I wanted Deborah to give us a picture of her own global background by asking which countries she's previously called home. Oh my goodness, there's at least 11 that have been home uh, since I was born because I was the child of a diplomat and then I joined the United Nations and then I married a Dutch diplomat so in, in, in no order because I haven't prepared for that and I always forget uh, Germany, Colombia, Brazil, Canada, Iran, England, the US kind of but not really because my parents were there but I was in boarding school, uh, Colombia again, Canada, South Africa, Colombia again, and there were bits and pieces in Saudi Arabia and other countries when I did little internships. So it's it's a complicated background. How long have you lived in The Hague? Oh, more than 20 years. I was married to a Dutch diplomat at the time, and so this was a home posting. When we first got married, we were in Brazil. I was working for the UN, he was with the embassy. We did ask for a posting anywhere in the world, preferably the developing world, as the term was used, so that I could try and get a job with the UN. The world is a big place, but they sent us here. <laughs> so we started our life here, and we were here for three years. I went back to school uh, to get my master's, and then we went to South Africa, and I was able to work again, so that was good. I know you worked for the UN, and uh, you've, you've worked also for the ministry over here in, in the Netherlands. And from what I can tell from pretty much every posting, every country you've lived in, you've either worked or volunteered or both or studied. Um, how important is that? Oh, I think it's crucial. It's, 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 yeah, it makes all the difference when you arrive in a new country, think you're going to be a certain person, I'm going to get a job or I'm going to start a family or I think when I was on my own, I knew what I was going to do. When I was the accompanying partner, we knew what he was going to do but we didn't know what I was going to do and I might have had and we all have ideas of what we think we're going to do um, and sometimes those ideas work but it's if they don't work it's important to have something else something that has nothing to do with the home nothing to do with the spouse something that you can call your own I think that makes the difference it, it creates your network it gives you an identity that has nothing to do with your spouse so whether it's volunteering or going back to school it's, it's really important to do something with the time you've got. This makes me think of what, what you wrote on your LinkedIn profile, that your mission is, is to equip people, projects and causes relating to global living and expatriation, but to make the most of the experience and succeed. Um, how would you define succeeding? I think success for me is if you can wake up in the morning with a smile on your face. Whether it's uh, the paycheck, whether it's the promotion, whether it's the project you got off the ground, for me is if you're doing something that's valuable, something that ensures that your identity and your creativity is intact and it's respected. So you wake up in the morning with a smile on your face for whatever small achievement you've made, large, small, medium, there's no size. Um, if you wake up in the morning with a smile and proud of yourself, that's success. But that kind of takes us to Access because what Access's mission is to try and provide 
that feeling, I think, of feeling integrated to newcomers to The Hague. Um, how did you first get involved with Access? I met the chair of the board and uh, a conversation led a certain way and I said, well, I can help. And so when I first started, I was job sharing with the other executive director. So we job shared for a little while and then she, uh, then she left and so I ended up doing it all. But I had used Access in my previous, you know, the first time I first came to the Netherlands, uh, recently married. Not too much internet then, so we did a lot of phone calls. Uh, and so they helped me with those answers. And I think I'll just correct one little thing about Access. We actually have two missions, in my opinion. The first mission we have is towards our volunteers. So our mission is to provide them with a professional volunteering opportunity, which is uh, enjoyable and fulfilling for them. And in doing that, we're able to then fulfill our public mission, which is to serve the international community. So, so long as we can create an environment where people are coming and giving their, their best, contributing ideas, then we function in order to serve the broader community. So we, we publicize our public mission, but uh, myself and our operation, and the Access Operations Manager, Chin Kai, uh, we very much look after the team. The team has to be happy and intact. And they've done an amazing job during this COVID period. Uh, the help desk team is not coming into the office, but they are all working uh, online from their homes. Our smart team is phenomenal. That was going to be one of my questions, obviously. Um, so, so do you have some top tips to, when you're working in a volunteer managed organization, um, how do you keep morale up when everybody's feeling, we're all feeling a little bit anxious, a little bit apathetic, uh, how do you keep people motivated? That's a challenge. Since part of our mission is to give people a place to go, and we haven't been able to give them that place to go because of COVID. So we have to find creative ways to make sure that they continue to be engaged. The teams that are working the most actively are doing that very well because they support one another. So as, whereas before we might have looked at the global organization, we're now looking at smaller teams. And each of the teams are trying to in, in, ensure that there's synergy within that group, that they're there for each other, that they can make jokes, that they can cry, they can scream, whatever. It has been more of a challenge to engage the whole organization. Lots of theories about why that is and no real answers yet, but we keep trying. We keep trying to create spaces where people can come and join us, whether it's a meeting, whether it's uh, we tried an online potluck lunch. Uh, it was a smaller group, but it was a really meaningful conversation. And so I think uh, so long as we create some opportunities for those conversations, people feel heard uh, and are listening to other people and realizing that it's not just them, it's all of us. How has Access changed as an organization under your leadership? I came into Access in a very critical period. Finances were not healthy at the time. So the first few years was looking after, on the one hand, paying attention to the finances. But when I joined Access and I was job sharing, I was doing a lot of the internal stuff. Um, so I was more responsible for the internal team. And I think uh, what my legacy or what I've given to the organization is I've given it some structure. So I've made it more professional and made it more consistent and people know where to go and who to speak to and what to do and what they're doing. And I think that from that clearer definition, a lot more opportunities came up. Working more consistently with municipalities that we work with. We were working with them, but it was kind of 
there. It wasn't a mission. It wasn't driven. It didn't have purpose. And so we, you know, we invested first, of course, in the, in the city of The Hague, where we had originally started with them, because it is 10 years that we've been partners with The Hague International Center. So that's something we're looking forward to celebrating. And then we added other cities, uh, Utrecht, and then Amsterdam, and then Leiden. And using the same formula and always trying to make sure that we said no when we couldn't do something. And I said a lot of no's in the first few years because although we needed the money, we needed to look after ourselves first. So I think it was about two years of uncertainty. And since then, it's much better. Do you have a vision for the future of access? Good question. I don't. Uh, and I, I don't mean that in a negative way, but I just, whatever vision we may have had uh, has certainly been disrupted in 2020. We're back to looking after our finances again, so we've been hit, uh, potentially been hit by the situation in financial terms. So at, at the moment, we're looking internally a lot. How is the team doing? How is the team doing? How is the team doing? Are my questions. While we basically uh, look to 2021 to redefine who we are, how we're doing it, are there new needs that we can be filling? Are there other partnerships that we can explore? Within all of that uncertainty, there is one certainty, and that is our desire to work more with international employers. So people, we've had until now, our partnerships are either service providers or the cities, so, so we have financial arrangement with them. And the service providers, many of them support us just because they want to make sure we survive. But we see that with the employers, people bringing in internationals, that there's a lot that we can do for their HR departments and for their international staff. So we call that the patron program, and it's something that we'll be looking at more uh, effectively in the coming year. Uh, and the international schools, looking at them not just as places where international families gather, but they're also employers. So we're trying to help uh, many of the international schools with their onboarding of their new staff members as well. Does that include helping your current volunteers to find jobs in, with these international employers in international schools? We don't help people find jobs. <laughs> in fact, uh, on, uh, on our website, we say that, you know, if you're actively looking for a job, then it's not ideal to volunteer with us because we invest quite a bit of time to train you. And if we train and then you leave in a month, it's a lot of effort for our teams. Having said that, we do get people looking for jobs and some stay after they found a job. Some negotiate time off so that they can still stay with us while they're working. But what we do is, of course, provide people an opportunity to add a skill to their LinkedIn, increase their network so that they hear about opportunities that would otherwise not be uh, advertised. So in that way, we quote unquote help them, but not actively. Can you tell me about any memorable volunteers you had? I mean, when you think we have about 130 volunteers in total, there's just too many unique qualities. There's too many unique instances or moments. Some have been with us. Uh, we have two or three who've been with us for 15 years, but we have others who've only been for three months. Um, somebody who's been here for three months, you know, will have obviously uh, less impact. Having said that, so we had somebody who worked three, three months and organized our whole archive. You know, she came in, she saw what was missing and put it all together in the space of the summer. That was amazing. We have a counselor who's been with us for 30 years. That's amazing. So it's, it's, um, that's a very difficult, if not impossible, question to answer. <laughs> Access provides advice, articles, workshops, everything from legal advice to childbirth. Does this encourage people to stay a little bit in the expat bubble? If you provide everything in English and you, you, know, you 
direct them towards international schools, international service providers. Wouldn't the people who you target also benefit from digging deeper into Dutch society? Absolutely. We do encourage people to learn Dutch. We do encourage people to understand what's happening in the Dutch society around them. But certainly when they first arrive, they don't have the Dutch, so they need our support in finding the right answers and knowing where to go. And even if they are learning Dutch, for many, even though it's not their first language, it might be a language that they're, they're confident in and they're strong in, they can still get a little bit of assurance knowing that that answer is written so that they can understand it. They might read the answer in Dutch as well on another website, but they'll double check with us. And so I think that gives people a little bit of support, but we certainly do not in, uh, encourage in any way people to stay within the expat community or international community. We encourage people to learn Dutch, to get to know their neighbors. One of the tips that we give in all of our presentations is explaining to people the reason you're not meeting your neighbors is because you have to invite them in. I come from a culture when I arrive in a new neighborhood, I'm invited out. Mm -hmm. If you come from that culture, you're going to be sitting at home in Holland because they're waiting for you to say, we are settled, please come and have coffee with us. So that is an, you know, a very concrete step in get to know your neighbors, reach out to them. Not everybody will become great friends. Some will have a cup of coffee, check out your living room and leave. Some will stay longer and you know, progress to the beer or the wine. But it's a way of getting to know your neighbors, understanding your neighborhood, understanding what things are happening around you. So we, we don't encourage people to stay in their expat uh, bubble, so to speak. Access has always been aimed at English speakers. Everything is in English. It's directed very much at the highly educated, highly skilled, more privileged side of the international community. Have you ever thought of extending services, providing information in Turkish and Arabic, help for people who don't have highly paid skills to find work too? It's a discussion we've certainly had at the board and at the management level. And uh, there are two or three important factors. First of all, uh, consistency. If we start offering in other languages, whatever language that is, how long will we be able to do so? Will we have enough people to continue it? As we have been able to continue the English language website. And the, and the conclusions we've come to is we don't have that security. The distinction you make between the, you know, the highly skilled migrant or the kennis migrant or somebody's here with some privilege, the diplomats, so on and so forth, that is the knowledge we have. We have the knowledge of that community who comes here not because they're going to stay for the rest of their lives, not because they're going to learn the language. Whatever their experience is of global mobility, of expatriation, that is what our core knowledge is. We understand that because our volunteers are that themselves. So we can answer from the point of experience. Many of the non-highly skilled market forces, such as refugees or people who are migrating, we don't have all those answers. We know where they can go look for them. We, don't, we do no pre-selection when people reach out to us. We have no idea who's on the phone or who's sending us an email. What we know is that they have questions, they've been able to express it in English, and we're going to answer it. You know, we might get some migration-related questions or some social benefit questions. We don't have that explicit knowledge. It, that knowledge is not always available in English either. So we know where to point them, but that's not who our target community is. You've been involved in several organizations and movements to empower and support women in The Hague, but also before you moved to the Netherlands. Can you say something about the evolution of opportunities available to women or not 
um, in the time frame of your career? I don't think so much things have evolved as women have evolved. And that evolved is the wrong word, but I can't think of the right word. I think certainly when I look at the younger generation of women coming, coming up, and I've participated with some in different networking groups here, it's interesting to see that they don't see limits for themselves. And they are, in essence, learning from us older women as well. I think many of us saw limits later or discovered them after the fact. And I encourage certainly people of my generation to share those stories with the younger generation because they need to hear those stories. They need to realize that the limits are there, but they can overcome them if they're aware of them. And it's our responsibility, I personally believe, to make them aware of them, point them out. But on the other hand, also I think because of the growth of social media and communications, many, many more things are easily seen and available to them. So I see women coming up stronger through the ranks because they have the opportunity to do so um, and they're learning from the generations before them. I probably, you know, in my generation, we never talked about salaries, at least my personal experience. But now they are and they're sort of saying, oh, wait a second, how come you're earning that and I'm earning this? Now, if, if I'd had that conversation, the situation would have been different. They're having that conversation. They're aware of that so that they can demand and say, okay, well, I'm going to work less until you pay me more or I'm going to go somewhere else. And I, you know, conversations with my own children, I see that there's more critical thinking going on also because they've got more access to information. I've been speaking to global nomad Deborah Valentine, who's made it her mission to help newcomers to The Hague make the best of their experience and find their way around in our city. In the second part of this interview, Deborah talks more about the threats to women today and also tells us what home really means to her, as well as the secret of how she learned to speak Dutch fluently. Dutch Buzz, made by the international community for the international community. In this part of the interview, Deborah Valentine, Director of Access, tells us which beloved dystopian novel she read 25 years ago, as if it were fiction, but which threatens to become dangerously close to reality in 2020. So the book I brought is The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood course very very popular at the moment but I first read it uh, in about 1986 it was published in 85 so I read it when it was recently published Margaret Atwood is a Canadian author I am Canadian she's a female I'm a female so there were two reasons to, to buy the book but when I first read it it was a complete dystopian novel it was something that the world was never going to see or so I thought um, and I've reread it uh, just recently, and it's uh, quite frightening, actually, <laughs> rereading it. Well, re some of the things that she, you know, that she positioned about women's uh, right to their own health and to their own body, and what happens to it, particularly looking at what's happening in the United States of America at the moment, it's frightening because some of the things that she's referring to in the book are kind of slowly evolving and certainly some of the talks with the the interviews that are taking place at the moment with the replacement of Ruth Bader Ginsburg some of her answers are not encouraging so so it was when you asked me I thought oh gosh what am I gonna bring what am I gonna bring and then I thought I'm going to bring something that when I read it it was fantasy complete fantasy and when I reread it a year ago it was shit 
Now I say that on radio? <laughs> it's Holland, right? And what was interesting is my son read it as well. And he knew my story, you know, that this was a dystopian novel, dystopian future, science fiction almost. And he read it and he was like, wow, that's scary because so much of it is not so uh, weird anymore. Some of it is like, oh yeah, we're seeing that happen. Thank you. I see that you also have a photograph with you. I have a photograph of me and my babies. So this is uh, taken, it was probably taken in about 2000, 2003, more or less, uh, or 2004, uh, visiting my parents in Canada, the three of us, around the time that my marriage was not going through its best phase, around the time of the divorce, or maybe just before the divorce. But it's a picture that we had uh, visiting my parents in Canada, they have an apartment in Stratford, which is Stratford, Canada is like Stratford, England. We have Shakespeare, we have the Avon, we, it's a lot of the UK references. And it's a place that we all love going to. It's a lovely apartment, it's a lovely environment, and it's always very welcoming to be, to be back home, uh, and certainly for the kids as well. Home is still Canada. Uh, a home is not just a, a roof or a, a door or an address, it's a, it's a feeling of being loved, of being looked after, of knowing that someone's caring for you, of knowing that someone's thinking of you. Uh, it's memories, it's going back to places that you've been to before, discovering new things, uh, enjoying old things. So yes, we grew up all over, all over the world. I moved until the age of 40, I moved every four years, basically. But wherever my parents are, that's home. They could be living somewhere else, and I was going home then. But I'm still going home now, and of course they're retired and they're living in Canada. They're both uh, still alive and, and, and very healthy. Home is where the heart is, and they are part of my heart. And I guess it was a vulnerable time for you, and it brings back memories of maybe safety, security. Yeah. What else have you brought with you? <laughs> I'll start with the kitchen. The kitchen is a uh, electronic wine opener with a light. <laughs> I enjoy a glass of wine. My brother knows that I enjoy a glass of wine. He's always looking for creative Christmas gifts when we're there and Christmas gifts that'll fit in a suitcase. So he, he gave this to me a few years ago and it's the only mistake he made was that he bought this in Canada, of course, so it's 110. Uh, and so we had to figure out another charger <laughs> to make sure it works here but I found the solution. So my wine continues to be opened, uh, no, uh, no stress involved <laughs> because of my brother. <laughs> um, and the other item, yeah, is a, is a glass nail file, which uh, is beside my bed. We were, I was talking to the children last night, I was like, what am I gonna bring that's beside my bed? And they gave me a few ideas, and I was like, that doesn't make sense. And then my daughter said, your nail file. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, yes. This nail file, the reason I, have, I bought it, so it's a glass nail file, is a dear friend of mine, the woman who is actually responsible for me actually speaking Dutch, gave me a small travel one years ago. I can't remember what the occasion was, knowing her just because she saw it and she thought, let me give this to somebody. But it's a nail file that you know looks after your nails, helps them grow, this, that, and the other. But it reminds me of, of Bernie. And she is a dear friend. They're living in the US at the moment. But she uh, is Dutch. I met her through the embassy. And she, when we first met, I was avoiding Afrikaans because we were living in South Africa. And so I was speaking more English than I probably should have. And she just actually categorically refused to speak English to me. I would struggle around in my Dutch. And if I threw in an English word, her face would remain 
blank until I found another way of describing what I was trying to get across. So there were days that she was not my best friend um, during that period, but she's, uh, and we're probably not as in touch as we ideally should be, but when we do uh, connect again, it's always very pleasant. And, and uh, yeah, and the nail file is because of her. If you ever try to help people um, with their English, would you, is that a technique you would also adopt of not letting them speak their own language with you? Even though, as I believe, you speak five languages, right? In Colombia, there was uh, one woman who was trying to learn English, and so was I that strict with her? I don't think I was, in hindsight. And I haven't really met too many people struggling with learning English, which is also a, a kind of a privileged position as well. I think I probably indicated that I would help, but I'm not sure I was that consequential with it, unfortunately. <laughs> Finally, Deborah, I would like to ask you if you can nominate somebody else who you think should be on our Dutch Bras uh, String of Pearls. I know you've got a big network and you know a lot of people in The Hague. The question about well, you know, whether you've come up with them already, because so, I think you've already interviewed quite a few uh, pearls. I think you've already interviewed Billy Allwood, who is definitely somebody who, who you will be. Yes, he's definitely uh, somebody who's been around for a very, very long time and done a lot for the international community. I think other names that I would add to the list are, are Sharon Van Es, or actually Sharon Cooper, who is the editor of the, the Hague uh, English website, Elska Hulk, who's the founder of Stet. You see, you're I'm giving you names and you're going, yeah, I've already scheduled them. Lisa Hall is somebody who is on the board of the Women's Business Initiative, has been part of the Women's Business Initiative almost from the beginning, helping entrepreneurial women, not all internationals, but a large majority of them, to, to network and set up their businesses. So she is certainly somebody uh, who I would also nominate. Teresa Moynihan, uh, who is a career co coach, she's also one of our trainers, has also been very, very active helping people redefine uh, and re readjust their careers as they travel. Katriona Rush, who is a cultural consultant, perhaps not as active in the international community, but very, she's been very helpful to access. She's one of our trainers as well as uh, Teresa, but also has an interesting story and is also another pearl of wisdom to, to add to, to your collection. Deborah Valentine, Executive Director of Access and Pearl of the Hague's International Community. This is Aisha D'Souza. Meet the international community in the Hague. Den Haag.